0: Welcome to this episode of ClearedCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com, and welcome. Today, we're talking with Scott Edwards. Scott is... AIDS, the president and chief psychologist at Clarence Psych. He's a licensed board certified doctoral level psychologist with 30 years of experience. He now uses and applies that expertise to help folks in the national security community with a variety of questions. So thank you so much, Dr. Edwards, for being with us on the program today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Lindy.
0: So a kind, of, kind of a big focus of the show so far has been kind of all of those angsty things that make us insecure about the clearance process. The mental health component is certainly one of those things. It actually is a, you know, a separate adjudicated criteria. There's a specific questions along the security clearance application around mental health. So we, it comes up in various aspects of the security clearance process. One of the big ones that we saw and that we covered certainly at clearancejobs.com was around question 21, the mental health question, I'm having to answer that question and provide that information always create a lot of anxiety, but some folks are probably not aware of how it's changed since 2016. Most people on the you know listening probably have filled out a more recent SF86 than that. For folks who had to submit one more recently, kind of explain the nuance of changing that question and why changing that question makes the mental health component better for security clearance applicants.
1: Well, actually, you know, the government started to try to get smarter about the mental health questioning back in 2008. But then in 2016 there was kind of a revamping of the SF86, which is that application we all know and love that asks about every you know nuance of your life. So prior to 2016, a question really asked if you had ever been in any kind of mental health treatment in the past. I think seven years is what it asked for, which left it very broad and captured everything from you know suspected bipolar disorder all the way to you know the session you had in college when you went to talk to a counselor about your girlfriend breaking up with you or something like that. So um, it was very broad. It left it wide open. But in 2016, the government sort of clarified their position, which in, in improved it, I think, and just made it plain that they know that many people in the federal government have mental health conditions, you know, military members, contractors, civilian employees. Many of us have experienced mental health symptoms. In fact, if you look at the data. It's about, I think, one in five people in America have a diagnosable mental health condition. So, of course, that's true of the federal government workforce as well. The government clarified the position that the, the behavioral health issues or mental health conditions don't in and of themselves necessarily point to a security risk. But there are some times when those conditions might affect a person's reliability or their judgment. And that's what they really wanted to start to try to ferret out. So in 2016, they changed the section and made the questions more targeted asking about things like mental competency, if you've ever consulted with a mental health professional on a a court order, for example, or been hospitalized or diagnosed with a specific list of conditions that, if untreated, are likely to affect a person's judgment, like bipolar disorder or psychotic disorders or personality disorders, those sorts of things. So it made it much more specific, uh, targeted, I think, and and created a better, I don't know, I think if you read the question, it's it's less anxiety provoking to answer it than it was in the past.
0: Yeah, I think it got more specific, which I think helps because I think before you, it did kind of maybe contribute to that stigma of saying like, oh, are they interested in any kind of mental health treatment, which includes proactive mental health treatment, which I think certainly the disruption we've seen in our lives today, a lot of folks have kind of been seeking out even proactive mental health treatment. And I think the forum tried to clarify that. Yeah, and I can speak to the length of that because I was working for the U.S. Army twenty. You know, 2007 to 2010, and they were talking about changing question 21 th- at that time. <laughs> so that's how that's how long it takes to get the SF-86 changed. People, if you're frustrated by the form, it's because it takes it will take you 10 years after identifying something you'd like to change before it does get improved. But that was an improvement. Um, again, I would like to think that improved the stigma as a psychologist who kind of works within that population. Do you think that's the case? What do you think are some of the, maybe the misunderstandings about getting mental health treatment, or ways that even today maybe that question? is not answered correctly or causes incorrect anxiety from a security clearance applicant?
1: In general, I'd say stigma is alive and well. You know, in our society, I do a lot of work with the military. It's definitely alive in the military, you know, in the government system. And definitely for cleared populations, there's still a lot of stigma out there about having mental health issues. And when you see someone like, you know, um, I think about like Simone Biles, who stepped out and said, hey, I've got some psychological stress. And um, that definitely provides a nice role model for younger people and that it's that it's okay to be okay. But in general, in our world, I think stigma is still alive and well in our hearts and minds. It's kind of, in my opinion, it's kind of like racism and other kind of difficult social problems. You know, it's just hard to resolve it. With that being said, though, there are steps. There, there was a government form, command-directed evaluations back in the day, and they came out with a statement that the commander had to say to a service member, something along the lines of, like, there is no stigma associated with this referral. And I, I thought that was kind of hilarious because, you know, just saying it doesn't necessarily make it true. But but I do think there are there is some power in saying, hey, we're going to work on not stigmatizing everyone who has mental health issues and not putting you all into a bucket and saying, here's all the broken people. So by coming out and generally just saying, hey, we definitely want to work on this issue. I think there is some power there. So in my view, I think getting help now is the government is trying to look at that in a positive light. I don't know that they always do. um, As I work with various government agencies. I'm not sure they're successful, but they're trying to say it's okay to get help. In fact, we're going to view that positively. We know there's a large percentage of people who have mental health issues, and we know in general that they're not all a security risk. So when you look at the numbers, I think that sentiment is supported. Because we do see most people who have mental health issues that come through our offices for mental health evaluations uh, end up being cleared. So it's a small percentage of people with mental health problems that end up being ineligible for a clearance. So I guess if you're looking for behavior as evidence that stigma is improving, then I guess you could say it probably is to some extent. But we still have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, so you alluded to there. So talk to me a little about what your practice does. I mean, how do you help those security clearance applicants? Are you taking questions on the front end? So somebody's applying for the SF-86, they're concerned about the mental health question, they're getting your help in how to answer that or address that? Is doing a, a psych evaluation maybe to demonstrate reliability and trustworthiness for someone who's been denied a clearance or kind of what's the scope of work that you do within the national security community there?
1: We actually work both sides of the fence. So we work with the government. So we've we've worked with probably 30 to 40 government agencies providing evaluations at their request. So if there's an employee that needs an assessment to clarify their situation, then we'll take referrals from the agencies themselves. We work with security clearance denial attorneys. That's a lot to say, but attorneys focused on um, helping people with appeals. We work with several really great attorneys out there to provide their clients with mental health evaluations. And then we also take referrals from Just individuals who are trying to improve their situation or, you know, they want to clarify the situation or they've been asked to get an evaluation on the front end. So everything from pre-employment situations where there's been some sort of mental health, you know, hiccup in their life and their security clearance eligibility is being questioned before they can be hired to people who have been denied and who are trying to do some mitigating work. So I have several clients who I do. I call it life coaching because they're really not in. Necessarily need of mental health counseling to uh, validate eventually that they are you know good to go that they're trustworthy and reliable et cetera so yeah we work with people on, in, in kind of all facets of the psychological aspect of of security clearance
0: awesome it sounds like a, I'm sure it's very helpful and I think that's a big thing I mean we talk all all the time about clearance jobs sometimes no, it's just having the right information, the right advisors, It's not necessarily an issue of, you know, you know, a person not being able to obtain a, a clearance if they have the right information and they're being proactive about it. Same thing with mental health, like, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to seek proactive treatment. Um, Generally, the reliability and trustworthiness issue comes from the person who's not willing, <laughs> perhaps to take that step. So you've previously written an article for clearance jobs about that line between honesty and oversharing. And we see that across, again, all of the adjudicative criteria everywhere in the form, the amount of detail that's required in answering it. And you kind of have those guilt grabber personalities who tend to, maybe they're using the form to work out their mental health issues, or it's like it's a counseling form, which is not the purpose of the form. Kind of talk about that line between honesty, but then it does not help your background investigator to provide a lot of information that is erroneous to the form and maybe how that comes up in mental health issues as well.
1: Yeah, you know, going back to section twenty-one on the SF eighty-six, if you if you just read the questions and answer those questions honestly, you'll be in pretty good shape. Um, if there are issues on the form that need to be addressed, then they'll they'll look at that and address it. But if you notice it doesn't ask about things like ADHD or depression or anxiety, it asks about more you know serious conditions like personality disorders and schizophrenia. My stance, and this is not something that the government necessarily agrees with, and you know I've caught some uh, flack from this. Actually, that article got me several comments from my government clients. And and that's fine. It could just, you know, just be a point of uh, disagreement. But um, my stance is that, you know, when you're in a security clearance investigative process, that you need to take an open uh, stance. So basically be forthright and truthful in answering the questions that are asked of you. The security clearance is a privilege. It's not a right. And so it's your responsibility to be truthful, to be, you know, forthright to help them make a decision about whether you qualify, kind of like a driver's license. You go take a driver's test, and if you pass, then you can have your driver's license. Um, So this is, in a sense, a test to see if you pass or you meet the adjudicative guidelines. And those are there for all of our protection, to protect our way of life. And I I truly believe in that mission and that sentiment. However, um, the government doesn't need to or get to know every single thing about us. Even in a security process, Um, you know, maybe for, you know, a a good one, I I think from my stance is the um, childhood sexual abuse. If the investigator asks about it, of course, then you would want to answer honestly. But even then, I wouldn't necessarily feel the government needs to know the details of my history. They may need, They may ask, have you ever been abused or that sort of question, which would be odd, but let's say that it was asked. Then you should answer yes, if that's the case. However, the person doesn't need to know every nitty gritty detail about your, your life. They don't need to know every mistake you've ever made. So volunteering, volunteering a lot of that kind of information is not psychologically speaking, it's my realm is Is not necessarily wise or, or required. That's kind of the stance that I've taken. And so when you overshare in a sense, because you have some like guilty conscience, you know, um, that's probably not, they're probably not the person that you want to confess all your sins to. Yes. Answer the questions that are asked of you. Be honest. Um, if there's something super pertinent, then yes, you know, bring that up. However, there are um, a lot of things that Uh, you can keep to yourself.
0: No, and and you may bring up a great point because so much of the form, there are some of the quote unquote ever questions, but a lot of the questions have kind of a date stamp. They're looking for a date range. And even that's because we see the adjudicative guidelines list, you know, the criteria for obtaining a security clearance. And also there's language in there, you know, in the clearance policy guidelines about what can mitigate potential issues. Passage of time we see across the board is one of the biggest ones. There is something about kind of the mental health aspect. People kind of tend to over volunteer information that falls well outside of the scope or date range. But then again, it it creates red flags that wouldn't necessarily be there. And it's because they're, again, oversharing information that's not actually explicit to the form. Um, They needed to go see a psychologist before they started the clearance process so they could unpack those issues before they had the guilt and it comes up a lot in the polygraph. I mean, the polygraph is always one of the most kind of stressful aspects of the process. Can you kind of speak to why somebody might tend to over-volunteer information in that stress of the polygraph that they haven't previously disclosed, probably didn't intend to disclose, and how shame and guilt really play into that too?
1: The polygraph is is, you know, from a psychological standpoint, is fascinating. The whole entire kind of circumstance or, you know, occurrence of a polygraph and the condition of one. So we know psychologically that people often are um, predisposed to obedience. So we, you know, there's some really old studies that show that people are willing or will be willing to administer electric shock to others, even lethal shock, if an authority figure is there requiring it. So um, going into a polygraph, you know, that condition is set. You have a person who's an authority. You have a, con- a situation where the, the examinee is nervous. You know, there's a lot on the line and you could say, well, you shouldn't be nervous if you have nothing to hide, but still it's a unusual circumstance. The polygraph examiner has been through thousands of those sorts of circumstances. So it's very relaxed and comfortable and experienced. And so it's, you know, a situation where the examinee goes in, in the, in the beginning in a sort of one down situation. So nevertheless, Oh, I guess the other thing I should say is that most psychologists agree that there's very little data supporting the notion that polygraphs can detect lies in any reliable way. It's a very go-to kind of tool in the, you know, intelligence community and with many law enforcement agencies, but it's definitely not without controversy. So that data is, is questionable. The, um, I think power in the polygraph comes from the skill of the examiner. So the examiner is a experienced interviewer who does uh, potentially get hypotheses from, you know, the change in the person's respiration rates or the uh, blood Um, heart rate, blood pressure changes, skin conductivity changes, all those things that the polygraph measures, that person can can see that stuff and say, ha, there might be something here, and then go back and question more. And I think in the questioning is where information comes out the most. So I, I had a recent case where a person confessed to some sexual behaviors that were untoward and, you know, inappropriate, you know, I think even by the person's own judgment. But it was the first time that he had told anybody about any of it, including uh, some sexual, you know, activity with a relative. So it was, you know, in that moment, the polygraph examiner asked the question, have you concealed any major crimes or, or something along those lines? And, and he thought, well, maybe this was a crime because the, the relative was younger. And and so he lied and they came back for a second investigation and he um, he told the truth. And then it appeared like he wasn't forthright in the first investigation, et cetera, um, or uh, polygraph examination, I should say. And and all that to say that if you're confessing some sort of sexual behavior or some addiction or something for the first time to a polygraph examiner because you feel like you have to, you know, (laughs) That data is going to be highly suspect. There's going to be fear. There's going to be shame. There's going to be potential guilt there. And while they may end up uncovering information that disqualifies them for a clearance, and rightly so, it's still a process that I think breeds some level of misinformation just based on the intense emotional experiences that people have during those investigations.
0: Yeah and it is you know that's where the sexual behavior adjudicated criteria actually comes into light but we generally see clearances are denied only when there's a criminal conduct component to that in general with some exceptions but yeah you get in the polygraph room and and all of a sudden a lot of shame and guilt and anxiety turn into a an unhelpful cocktail for some security clearance applicants and that's where it's good to like maybe <laughs> again see a psychologist <laughs> before the polygraph I don't know maybe that's like a common takeaway i mean there's only a very small segment of the cleared population that has to go through the polygraph process and unless you're captain america it might be worth you know unpacking with somebody ahead of time just so you're kind of you know we say don't quote unquote prepare for the polygraph but also don't don't go in completely ignorant maybe right advice too
1: no i don't i think that's a really great thought what would be wrong with going and talking to somebody if you do have issues in your past Well, I mean, if you have sexual abuse issues in your past, it would make a lot of sense whether you're going through a polygraph or not. Those are things that people overcome every day, and and those are also things that when people don't, you know, address it, it often kind of sits there in the background and messes your life up. So I talk about that with anxiety all the time. It's kind of like the the American way, you know. And uh, I see people suffering from anxiety conditions and symptoms, and I think, wow, you know, we actually know how to help people with that kind of problem, and you could have a lot of relief if you went and talked with somebody about it. Um, So, you know, in general, of course, you know, I'm biased, you know, it's my profession. I believe in it. People that come to me and that are trying to mitigate some past issue and they don't really have any kind of problems. I mean, we do a lot of great work together. We do a lot of really fun activities like um, developing a sense of purpose in your life or, you know, uh, a life mission statement, you know, different things like that. And um, just helping people live more intentionally and, you know, make sense of, some of their own experiences and things like that. So yeah, why would, why would you be afraid to do that? And especially if you were going to face something really foreboding, like a polygraph.
0: On that note... Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Mental health issues and the security clearance. Mental health issues should not prevent you from obtaining a security clearance or applying, but having the right information is key. So check out clearancepsych.com and for all of the information that they have there. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for chatting with me today.
1: Thank you, Lindy. I appreciate it.
0: This is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cleared Cast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.